This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I think a common distortion of belief and trust that people import into the New Testament uh, is the idea that it's just a mental thing, that um, really what God wants us to do is get our mental furniture arranged properly first, and only subsequently can we do anything with our bodies. So um, whenever we encounter the word faith in the New Testament, belief in the New Testament, sometimes we'll find trust in some translations. Um, I think that we have in our, in our minds a mind thing that God wants us to do. And I think that's um, that's dangerous because it internalizes our ideas about faith um, in ways that don't align fully with the biblical worldview. So internalize our versions of faith. Uh, I was just meeting with our spiritual life student, like they help guide spiritual life on the campus here. And uh, I was just talking to them about faith as an only interior disposition. Do you think, and I I wondered if I was overselling the case, but I I was telling them like, hey, we have to get away from this, that faith is just our interior relationship with God. Um, Do you see that as, like, do you see that reflected at all in the New Testament text or the or the Hebrew Bible, that it is actually something about our interior disposition, and and where does it go wrong? Like, yeah, you're right. We could we can oversell this idea, um, and we have to watch that we don't do it because the the best way to think about this, I think, from a biblical framework, would be to see that pistis language, I mean, our language in, in Hebrew, um, that it it's mainly focused on a relationship that was externalized towards someone or something else. So that um, if I, um, if I, yeah, um, if I exercise pistis toward you, right. Um, that means that I'm going to be faithful to you, loyal to you, trust you. Um, and of course we would want to say that there are mental dimensions of that, but what, what, it seems like scripture wants to emphasize is something that actually happens as part of that, um, that I do something that is an act of loyalty or an act of faithfulness or an act of fidelity or some sort of way in which I embody my trust to you. So um, we can oversell the idea because it it does have an interiority, but the Bible's emphasize, the Bible's more interested in its exteriority. Hmm. And so you say exteriority, I, I think you mean how people are actually embodying uh, real actions and real history and 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 doing things with their body and in the community, I would assume as well. Yes. Yes, okay. that's right. And so, um, yeah, I guess it, it, a difference would be to think about like the degree to which we want to be introspective about it. Right. Um, and I think that the research would suggest, and here I'm drawing, especially on Teresa Morgan's um, book, Roman Faith and Christian mm-hmm. Faith, the research would suggest that interior that, that there was not a lot of reflection about the interiority of pistis or its quality, right? Um, that mostly what people were thinking about was how well was it performed? Pistis is this uh, this Greek word that is famously, or maybe in my world, infamously translated as faith. 
which has all kinds of problematic uh, associations in American English. Um, but what in the Roman world, what what would if you show pistis towards somebody, what, what does that mean? Like what yeah. realm are you showing pistis in the, in the, yeah, the it, religious it, realm? It can be. Um, it, yeah. The, it's a very plastic word that was used in all kinds of different spheres of life. Um, everything from, you know, lawyers to um, their client, to doctors, to patients, to um, slaves, to masters, to um, people with respect to the gods, gods with respect to the people. Um, and, and so it's mm. this wide ranging word. Um, I think that probably the most helpful framework that we can enter pretty easily into that seems to be a, a pretty large macro structuring framework for it in the biblical world would be the, the patron-client um, relationship where you have a person of power or privilege um, that in some way has the ability to provide blessings or benefits to someone that's underneath them. Uh, and this person that's underneath them in some way relies on them, and that would be their client, right? So the client um, has certain things that they can bring benefits to back to the patron. They bring honor. Um, you know, if the patron is a wealthy person and can lavish gifts um, on um, the, the, the people who are their clients, um, well, then um, the clients in return give something back. They give back honor um, or um, other kinds of menial services, right? And so um, what faith looks like um, is something that actually like is operative in both directions. Like the client like has to trust um, uh, that uh, the, the person who is the patron is going to supply the benefits they promised, for instance. Mm. Um, and they need to act in a way that would be loyal to that that patron, right? And so there's dimensions of trust and faithfulness going on. Similarly, um, the patron has to trust that the client will provide honor if he gives a gift um, uh, or, or, and so on and so forth, right? So there, the thing that's interesting is that a lot of our language um, that connects to salvation, right, in the New Testament, language of grace, language of faith, um, language of glory, um, all this stuff is connected to a patron-client structure quite readily in the New Testament world. And scholars like David De Silva um, in his book, uh, what's it called? Like Patronage, Honor, Shame, Purity, Purity, maybe is the name of the book, something like that. I'll trust um, you. Uh, what'd you say? I said, I'll trust you on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, it's probably, it's on my shelf somewhere, but I, I, I'd have to scan to try to find it. And he, he does a great job of exposing, um, you know, I think some of the, yeah, the underpinnings of this. So e even there, you, you kind of said things, something that might blow past a lot of people or maybe blow their minds uh, is that if words like glory, and I assume you're talking about doxa um, mm -hmm. and salvation, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. kavod, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and salvation, we take these to be like Christian religious words, right? And mm -hmm. it sounds like you're saying these are just uh, standard ideas and practices in, in Greco-Roman culture that are now being used as metaphors to describe kind of what our relationship to Christ and what he's done for us is, is like, right? And these are, these are attempts to, to bring in the right metaphors that give us enough to understand what's happened. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. As I'm sure, you know, like Kavod, Doxa, like these words um, are connected to honor, reputation, weight. Like you can think of, of course, like the weightiness of something. Like mm -hmm. when somebody famous walks into a room, there's like a sense of gravity, right? That like the whole orbit of the room begins to revolve around that person because they're a person um, that is a person who has a lot of um, 
glory associated with it. That would be the kind of the ancient idea. We don't as readily connect our ideas of glory. We tend to go to visual ideas, mm-hmm. I think, like someone something glorious is like sparkly in our mind. Right, right. Um, in the ancient world, it can involve ideas of visual glory, but um, reputation and weight are um, very closely associated with. Um, and as part of that, then, um, like ascribing proper honor and proper glory to that person is is all bound up with this right and so yeah i think as we think about um this kind of language we oftentimes don't we we oftentimes connect it to maybe salvation in the wrong way like Mm -hmm. doxa like we might think about that as glory like well we're going to have a heavenly glory someday and we think well that means we're going to sparkle like angels or something Right, right? right that's what's in our mind um but actually when paul talks about the gospel one of the things he says is it is it's the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is Second Corinthians mm. four four. I'm speaking off the top of my head. I think that's the right reference. Um, and so, when he re- speaks about the gospel, he can actually describe it as the glory of the Christ, right? And um, and so, this has to do with the restoration of of God's appropriate rule as um, as the the very weightiness of human occupation and glory, right? Is to is to bring God honor. Right. And that's all connected to our imaging of God properly in the created order. So some of this language of restoration of glory as it connects to salvation actually probably involves more of a restoration of bearing his image properly and less of us like taking on a certain kind of sparkle in the afterlife. <clears throat> You're just, you're stealing our sparkle, man. <laughs> yeah. You're harsh well, and our that, mellow. Not that our resurrected bodies <laughs> won't be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I, I I like that you're 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 exactly right. That I think e- even when you say the words in my mind, you're queuing up. There's visual uh, connotations that go along with these terms in, in American English, in the kind of the religious cliche it's become for us. So, mm-hmm. I wonder, um, what do you imagine in Paul's mind um, is you know this word pistis, which you have. Um, not controversially, it's controversial for some people, but you've basically said, look, in some occasions, probably allegiance is the right way to uh, to translate this word, and, and depending on where it's at in the New Testament. But what would that allegiance look like, uh, do you think, on the street, daily life of a Christian in Paul's time? Well, yeah, that's a that's a huge question to kind of like you know obviously like we're going to get into the ancient world and then think about how that might in some way connect to today. Well, if um, I could so, compare and contrast it, sure, maybe we could start with what would it look like for a Roman citizen to show allegiance to uh, a patron or a god in some way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, certainly that would involve um, like for instance in the patron client system, um, literally. Um, one of the things that patrons uh, expected their clients to do um, was to show up at their house in the morning. Um, hmm. We have ancient records of this that like uh, clients would race to get to their preferred patron's home and be there. And when their patron uh, woke up in the morning and went out the door, um, there would be a variety of clients there to greet them. And, and the, and the, and the, the patron would literally give money to them. Like, here's your handout, like for the day. Hmm. Um, sometimes there would be um, there would be a, a kind of a dole uh, that would be issued out um, because they've been there to show honor to you, and that hmm. you then you you then provide support for them uh, in their needs. And you might give them a task to do, right? As the as the patron, um, you might give the client a task to do as part of the money you're giving them. You're entrusting them with something, but but there's an ongoing relationship there. Do you expect them to be there in the morning to honor you? Um, um, with their 
you know, just by being present because you might have something they need to do hmm. uh, or maybe not. Um, and maybe they'll give you money regardless. And so that would be an example on the practical level of, um, of how, like in the Greco Roman world, like a rich person's relationship to a poor person sometimes worked. Um, and so, yeah, like our ideas of grace, like of gift giving, you would see how it connects closely to these ideas, ideas of honor, and then ideas of loyalty or faithfulness. They're all, they're all wrapped up. Hmm. So, I mean, it just, you know, it's, it's what all the old ladies, when I became a Christian would tell you, like, you know, this, this isn't just in your heart, this, you actually have to like, people need to see in your life that you, I don't think they would use the word allegiance, but that you have faith in God, but this is what they seem to mean. Um, and do do you know any, go ahead, sorry. Well, I was going to say, yeah. And so what I'm calling for is a, is a small shift in understanding. I think it it can have some revolutionary implications. Uh, but I think that, you know, really what I've been trying to articulate in some of the the stuff I've been writing is that is that the gospel has a certain royal shape that sometimes we've missed, right? Mm-hmm. That like the the miss has been that like, you know, kind of thinking the gospel is all about personal forgiveness for sins. Like what do we need to do? We need to trust Jesus died on the you know, for for our sins on the cross. Mm-hmm. And that's really the heart of the gospel. And I've been saying, no, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus be, has become the king. And as part of that, he gives you benefits, right? And the benefits involve forgiveness of sins. Um, so trying to kind of re- reframe some of that, like helps people to make sense of how the gospel, um, yeah, is a royal gospel um, that isn't demanding just that we trust that the atonement works or that forgiveness happens, but that we goes beyond that, that we give our embodied loyalty to Jesus as king or our embodied allegiance to him as king. And that's really the center point of the gospel decision. Whenever we ask somebody to decide for or against Jesus, we're asking them to decide for or against his kingship first, right? Knowing that the benefit of forgiveness follows from that. We're not like the point of decision isn't whether or not the forgiveness is really going to work for us. And that's a different kind of decision about what the gospel is all about. It makes me also think even uh, heavy, weighty issues like uh, when we're showing allegiance to Jesus, we're also trusting him in the age of resurrection that he will raise us up from the dead, right? That we'll be judged uh, to enter the new heavens, new earth, uh, just as he had to trust his father in that moment as well. It's the first yeah. part of the dead. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, and I, and I think even putting it in that allegiance relationship and the, the political overtones of it, it makes me wonder, I struggle with this in class because in the Hebrew Bible, we have to deal with the English translation where it's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And of course, yeah. not a single person in my class, unless they were raised in England, actually has any kind of palpable feel of what that word means, the mm. Lord. Um, not to mention it's typically his personal name, not uh, not the Lord there anyway. But I, I do wonder if, if we miss all the political connective tissues just because it's in a monarchical, it's, you know, it's in a monarchy that it's set for us. And we, sh- should we change it to the prime minister, the, the president uh. or what, while we're making minor adjustments? Yeah. I mean, there's been the big one of the, the kingdom of God. I've heard uh, many people suggest the empire of God might help you better understand what's going on there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I would want to put forward anything definitive in terms of how we should train to change translations of the Bible, but it is, I think you're right. I mean, Lord is uh, helpful in the sense that it's, um, a vaguely authoritative word, Mm -hmm. right? Um, 
and here I'm talking about Auto Nine, not the personal name, right. you know, um, the, the Tetragrammaton, like not talking about that. Um, but yeah, um, so I, I do think that it's helpful um, to continue to retain language of authority. I, but I think you're right. The deeper problem is we just have no practical experience of that. And I don't know that there's an easy solution to that. I mean, mm-hmm. probably the closest we get is by like immersing ourselves into a culture where we see um, a culture depicted to us where lordship really mattered, mm. you know, and I think as part of that watching, you know, like documentaries or period pieces that are set in, right. you know, in the middle ages where um, you have like a lord and a vassal, or you have people who are swearing loyalty to their, um, to their petty lord, right. And, and, and surrendering their sword to them. And like, this person's going to protect them. And, 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 yeah, and there's this dynamic between the king and, and, um, and the person who is um, giving their loyalty to the king, um, we see that like life and death hung on those kinds of allegiances, and um, like it's 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 so distant from our experience where we have an experience of voting and representative government, and if we don't like the person who's in charge, well, they're not a lord anyway, right? They're just right. a, a public servant in theory, <laughs> right? Just one um, of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's extremely difficult for us to get into this, and this is not a problem. I. Um, I myself have the problem too. I don't know how to get into that more thoroughly. I've struggled with that, you know, other than reading ancient literature too, that, that does help. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I've been reading a, actually a, a helpful book on ideal kingship, um, right now, um, by Julian Smith, uh, and it's called Paul and the good life. And he has a lot of interesting reflections on virtue and kingship mm-hmm. and how, um, those were all connected in the ancient world. Um, I wonder you've used the terms uh, emuna and kavod, and you, so you're you're referencing these Greek terms, but you're also always paralleling them to these Hebrew terms. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of this thinking and these these metaphors do you think come from the Hebrew Bible? And you know, could could Paul have worked independent of the Hebrew Bible just to say what's obvious? Um, could he have? You know, is he basically just? Working out a Greco-Roman playbook, or does he see the the Torah and, and the prophets as kind of necessary for properly conceptualizing what he thinks is true of Jesus? Oh, certainly, uh, he he sees the Torah and the prophets as absolutely essential, right? As uh, the gospel itself, like as Paul articulates it, he speaks in Romans about the gospel being promised in advance in Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Romans one two. Uh, in First Corinthians fifteen three through five, right where he talks about you know the the Christ you know that he died for our sins. What is it in accordance with the scriptures? Right. right? So he he clearly wants to link it very intimately to the Old Testament. Um, when you ask the larger question about like metaphor though, and like the transferability of some of these terms across the testaments, I, we're getting into you know big questions about language right. and how. Um, metaphor theory works and, and things like that. I would to cut to the chase would 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 tend to say that there's a lot of continuity there, and that um, I don't see a enormous difference between um, the yeah the the Old Testament's um, relational world and um, the Greco-Roman relational world in terms of fundamental things like um, powerful people having people who are dependent upon them and dynamics of gift giving and of reciprocity and of faith and faithfulness and covenantal frameworks. And um, obviously the covenantal framework is something that like we would see as as important to the Old Testament, but very much to the new as well. 
and something that can easily be translated, I think, into a Greco-Roman environment. So I, I see a lot of continuity. Hmm. Um, and finally, has anybody ever mentioned to you that in the United States, uh, many places, I did it all throughout my childhood, is we swear allegiance uh, to the flag of the United States. Let, let's just set aside how weird it is to pledge allegiance to a flag. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think this, do we have any access to the idea of allegiance through kind of our cultural contact with elite ideas of allegiance and how much of those are tied into patriotism, et cetera? Yeah, I'll say two things on that front. One is that, um, we shouldn't underestimate how powerful they are, right? Allegiance ceremonies um, and mm. rituals, as um, I think that uh, all of us who grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, I mean, little kids love to memorize things and it's delightful to like stand up in solidarity with other people and and do something like that. It does um, create, I think, a powerful like cultural unity. And I can even speak from my own childhood experiences, like there were some... Um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, in my right. in my yeah, class, and they didn't pledge. Yep. Yep. And I, that stood out to me. I kind of yeah. remember like, th- these are weird kids. Like, yep. and I remember Same. thinking that probably inappropriately in retrospect. I mean, agreed. I, <laughs> like, <laughs> we I were mean, wrong. If you're yeah, the Jehovah Witness thing, <laughs> yes. I, you know, I, I'm not on board with, but I, yeah. but I do regret like, you know, like I think judging them yeah. in a negative light for their failure to participate in that allegiance ceremony. Um, and so it's powerful, I think, and it does create powerful cultural identity. So I think we need to capitalize on that in the church. Like we need to create more allegiance ceremonies mm. that are like allegiance to Jesus ceremonies and really help people to, in solidarity, like voice allegiance to Jesus. Like we do that well uh, in some traditions with creeds and with whatnot. But right. I think that oftentimes the focus isn't on, in the right place. The focus in is often on this is our common belief structure. Right. Like we need to we need to like retool that. Okay, hold on. Let's let's dig in there because it, is that not actually the exact problem that you're identifying with what we bring to the New Testament? Is we think of belief as as mental events, and as long as we all share these same mental thoughts in our heart or in our soul or in our mind, then that's what unites us together. It sounds like what you're saying is actually, as long as we show allegiance in community, that's what unites us together. Would that be correct? Yeah. Well, I think that like, obviously we would want to say like common beliefs are part of like, I would want to say ultimately part of our allegiance. Like we all like the, the gospels, like part of that is something that we commonly hold together as a belief system, right? right. Um, that we trust it, that we give loyalty to the King that's announced in it. But yeah, I think that, um, like the way that we need to mobilize these um, s- these statements of like credo belief or something like that is like toward a mission trajectory to say that like the reason we're saying this creed is because like we we are loyal to the king and this is this is a way that we as a community can promote our loyalty to the king and can glue us together so that when we go out from the church like we are embodying um, this gospel of loyalty to the king so. Yeah, I think that um, you're right. On the one hand, it is something mental, but on the other hand, it is something that I hope we show, right, as as we we enact yeah. it. And this becomes the big question for us as we, you know, use the scripture to hold as a mirror to, to look at ourselves is if we're only s- saying the words of the Apostles' Creed or the, the confessions, um, but we don't, there's no palpable way. I always tell students like, Look, if I want to know what your theology is, I'll hire someone with a drone to just follow you around and video you all day long. And after a few days, I bet mm-hmm. you I could figure out what your actual theology. You, you might tell me this yeah. is what your theology is, but here's your actual one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some way in which um, this allegiance category kind of forces us to think in that embodied communal, like how do we do this uh, way and, and in which I think it's easy to say, well, we believe it's easy to kind of skate away or moonwalk out of the room without actually having to put our bodies on the line in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a helpful reflection. And I, I want to stress, like, I don't have any of this figured out either. I mean, well, I have some of it, but not all of it. Right. we need to, that's why we need one another. We need the whole community to be thinking about, um, yeah, what it means to give our loyalty to the King as, mm. um, we all have our, yeah, we all have our talents and our struggles, right. in trying to enact that. Um, but yeah, I think switching the metaphor, uh, to one that is, I think more faithful to what scripture is trying to teach us about what the gospel is and how to respond to it, uh, at least gets us, um, like aligning our bodies and our minds in the right direction together. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.